Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. It's not often that a work of political philosophy takes a country by storm. Attentions these days are more likely to be captured by a tweet than by a book. Yet that didn't stop Micha Goodman's book, Catch 67, from becoming the talk of the town all across Israel last summer. The book, which has just been published in English, does the impossible. Looking at Israel's political stalemate and conflict with the Palestinians through fresh eyes, and even offering some possible ways forward. I sat down recently with Micha, who is the founder and director of Beit Midrash Yisraeli at Ain Prat and a research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, to discuss the book. Here is that conversation. Micha, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get into the thesis of this remarkable book that you've written, can you tell us your own story. How did you end up leading a Beit Midrash, a Jewish textual study program for a mix of secular and religious kids out on a hilltop in the West Bank? Well, I, uh, let's, let's, let's separate the location from what it is, okay? So because um, the, uh, the, the Beit Midrash is not in the hilltop of the West Bank. There is, uh, we have a campus in Emekaela and in the forest of Jerusalem, and we have something in Tel Aviv and something in Jerusalem, and something in Alon, which is a, which is in the Malaya Adumim area. Fair enough. So this these Batei Midrash, this network of Batei Midrash, was it began in two thousand and roughly two thousand and five. Sometimes there was a pilot. Two thousand six, it started working. Yeah, I, I guess it has to do with a strong feeling that me and some friends of mine had that this is like the kind of school we've never learned in. And I'm talking about three aspects to it. One, being after the army, meaning after the army in Israel is a very powerful age where people seek and search and on a journey. And we thought that this would be something very powerful and interesting for that very specific age group of being after the army and feeling that you're before the great journey of life. Two, um, I've been in the academic world, and I've been in the yeshiva world, and the academic world is very diverse, pluralistic. The yeshiva world is very passionate, and our question is, can we build a Beit Midrash that has the passion of the yeshiva world and a diversity, pluralism of the academic world? And finally, in, uh, in Israel, usually the educational systems are very separate for secular and religious, within the religious world, for men and for women, and it was important for us to, for it to be diverse on all levels, that the staff is diverse, secular and religious, that what we study is diverse, the content, also um, Western classics and Jewish, and Jewish classics, and finally, that the student body is diverse. So those are three, those are three different angles that brought us all in to start building this. And we started with six students in 2006. And this year we're going to have more than 300 students and more than 2,500 alumni. So it seems like my friends and I tapped into something real, a real hunger among young Israelis after the army for serious Judaism and pluralism and content. 
And I think it's that ability that you and your colleagues demonstrated to kind of tap into what people are interested in, what they're talking about, where their hearts and minds are, that perhaps made you so able to diagnose some things in this book that we're here to talk about, Catch 67. So in the most talked about part of the book, you lay out this fascinating thesis that each side of the political spectrum has been half right and half wrong, or maybe half successful at advancing their arguments and half unsuccessful. Can we start with the left wing and just tell us where has the left wing succeeded and where have they failed? So the left wing as a brand failed in Israel. Most Israelis don't want to be labeled left wing. But as an argument, it's very successful. Now, the main argument that the left presents that is very successful and very popular among Israelis is what's called the the demographic argument, which is the understanding that if Israel holds on to the West Bank and will continue holding on to the West Bank in the, in the decades to come. So Israel as a Jewish state will cease to exist. Because for Israel as a Jewish democracy to continue to exist, Israel has to maintain a very strong, massive Jewish majority. And if we hold on to the West Bank, we don't have that Jewish majority. And this is an argument that's presented with statistics, numbers, and a lot of passion. Um, from the left of the past few decades, and this really sunk in. Majority of Israelis accept this argument. Majority of Israelis are very worried that if we stay in the West Bank, we're threatening our majority, the Jewish majority of Israel, and therefore threatening Israel as a Jewish democracy. And in that sense, the left that is label, is a brand, is very weak, its argument is very strong, and it persuaded most of the, like between 60 and 70 percent of Israelis. But there's this other success that the right wing has had, which kind of acts as a countermeasure, right? Can you tell us about that? Yes. So the right has an argument that if Israel withdraws from the West Bank, Israel will shrink into borders which are not undefendable borders. Like, um, you know how in Israel today, the area that's surrounding the Gaza Strip is very unstable. The area surrounding the Gaza Strip is um, gets shelled and bombed, and 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 people many people don't want to live there. It's very unstable, and many Israelis are imagining, well, uh, what will happen to the area surrounding the West Bank if we leave the West Bank? And the area surrounding the West Bank happens to be the most highly populated area in Israel. That's where. Uh, 65% of Israelis live, and 75% of the economy is concentrated, and 70% of the culture is concentrated. So by leaving the West Bank, you're turning the center of Israel into an area that might, might look like the area next to Gaza, very unstable, not, and uh, not something that is a good picture to anyone. So the argument of the right is that if Israel leaves the West Bank, it threatens its ability to defend itself. And if you add, and now, now and 70, 80 percent of Israelis are persuaded by this argument of the right, that Israel can't leave the West Bank or else it can't defend its security. So you put this together and you realize that Israelis are in a very interesting place to be in, where on the one hand they think that if 
they leave the West Bank, they're threatening their security. They stay in the West Bank, they're threatening their majority. Which means if we leave at the West Bank, we're threatening our future. And if we stay in the West Bank, we're threatening our future. And that is a very interesting place where many Israelis are positioned. Now, you see, Israelis are very famous for having a lot of certainty. Well, here's something many people don't know about Israel, about Israelis. They lost their political certainty. They're very confused when it comes to the big question of the future of the West Bank. And so actually, at this time of, you know, increasing political polarization, which Israel, you know, certainly is is not immune from, perhaps a majority of Israelis even actually contain elements or have accepted elements of arguments from both the left and the right and have kind of internalized those. Yes, this is very interesting. Israelis, well, I think Israel went through a process that is going that the world is going through, is that people stopped voting for policies. It's like people, before they decide what to vote for, they're not asking what are the main policies of the candidates. People vote for their identities. People vote for their tribes. So the left-right battle in Israel, like in the States and like in many places in the world today, is identity. It's about tribes. It's not about ideas. It's not about policies. But if it would have been about policies, so it turns out that because most Israelis are confused regarding the policy— and they lost their certainty. So most Israelis haven't agree on on the main issue. They agree that that they're very confused and very perplexed. The thing is, they don't. The fact that that um, both the right and the left won the argument doesn't mean that most Israelis became centrists. Again, because people today vote for their tribes and their identities. But when it comes to policies. Most Israelis lost their certainty, and most of them agree on the main problems. Your book, when it first came out in Hebrew, it's now out in English, and it's called Catch 67, and our listeners can find it on Amazon. But when it first came out in Hebrew, it was kind of all the rage in Israel, In uh, I guess throughout 2017. And uh, here in the U.S., our former presidents don't usually have a, a second act as book reviewers, but former Prime Minister Ehud Barak took to Haaretz to offer a critique of Catch 67, and you guys actually had a little bit of a back and forth. Now, his argument is that the concerns of the right, right, that ceding land might ultimately uh, lead to heightened security risks for the majority uh, of Israelis, are serious, but that they're not existential. Whereas the concerns of the left, those demographic concerns, those could actually lead to the end of Israel. Now, did you find that to be a fair critique? I found that to be a fair critique, but not an updated critique. I'll try to explain. Mm -hmm. There is actually, when it comes to, um, you see, this is the kind of critique I got from both sides. I created some kind of a symmetry between the argument of the right and the argument of the left. And Ehud Barak argues there's no symmetry. The argument of the left is more persuasive. People on the right told me, no, there's no symmetry. The argument of the right is more persuasive. <laughs> so, so not, not a dignified here, but Ehud Barak, um, has a great advantage because he was not only prime minister, he was also chief of staff, he was a leader of the army. He's a very, very highly, he's, a, he's, a, he's considered one of the most brilliant generals Israel ever had. And when he comes and says that the argument of the right, that there is an existential security threat that will uh, in withdraw from the West Bank, when he says that, that, that has a lot of weight. 
because of his personality, because of his biography, and he was quoting in his critique of my book many generals that agree with him. But you see, the common denominator of Barak and many of these generals is that they have all come to age and they developed their strategic thinking before 2011. And 2011 is a very important date. After 2011, the generals that developed their strategic understanding of the Middle East after 2011 actually don't agree with them. I mean, most of them won't agree with them. And they think that a withdrawal from the West Bank is a strategic existential risk. And what happened in 2010, 2011, is the Arab Spring, or what was called back then the Arab Spring. Hmm. You see, what started collapsing was the idea of a stable nation-state. Libya collapsed. Um, Egypt went through two revolutions. Yemen was split into two. Syria collapsed. Iraq collapsed. And there was a wave of chaos that's destroying nation-states around the Middle East, and which completely changed the way we started thinking about the West Bank. Because, and here's something that happened to the Israeli, to the security arguments. It used to be that right-wingers would say, if Israel leaves the West Bank, a Palestinian state will become very powerful, and in a surprise attack, it will attack Israel from borders which are not very defendable. That is the old school uh, anachronistic argument of the right. Today, the argument of the right is more sophisticated. They say, well, if Yemen doesn't, is not surviving the chaotic forces tearing the uh, Middle East apart, and Syria and Iraq, and these are countries that, that, that are pretty, you know, seem stable and old countries with strong regimes, if they all collapsed, will a new Palestine survive? And what if the new fresh Palestine, what if it won't survive the forces that are tearing Syria apart? What will happen then? The problem is if we'll have chaos in the West Bank, very close to Tel Aviv, very close to the center of Israel. So Israel won't be able to really to enjoy stability and prosperity. So you see, the old argument of the right is that a strong Palestine will threaten Israel. The updated argument of the right is that a weak Palestine will threaten Israel. A dysfunctional Palestine will threaten Israel. So Barak's argument was that, well, there'll be a Palestine, and it'll be stable, and we'll have uh, security arrangements with the state. The problem is that you can't have security arrangements if there's not really a state there. And that's what we're risking. That's the main important persuasive argument of the right, is that... We can't really guarantee a stable state in the Middle East where nothing is really stable. And that, I think, the, the powerful argument of the right and Barack's critique is an important critique. I just didn't feel like it was an updated critique. It was the same song we're, we're listening to till 2011 and not updated in light of everything that happened in the Middle East after 2011. Fascinating. Now, Micha, I find your analysis to be truly incisive, but you don't only play diagnostician in the book, right? You're not just telling us about things, how they are. You do also have a prescription of sorts. You have some suggestions for how to, is it right to say, break the impasse? Um, can you tell us about that part? Yes. I actually think that the fact that we're in a catch, the fact that many of us feel that if we leave the West Bank, 
We're threatening your future. If we stay in the West Bank, we're threatening your future. Many things, that kind of thinking is leading us to, to be paralyzed. It's creating very passive politics. And I think maybe it's the other way around. Maybe we should rethink about how do we do politics today in the Middle East. And what I speak about is the small steps solution, which means, see, ever since Oslo, ever since the early 90s, there have been 17 different attempts to solve the conflict. 17. All 17 failed. Now, I'm not sure that this, the Middle East needs an 18th attempt. And definitely not recycling the same ideas we used and failed 17 times. There's no real reason why it will work the 18th time. <laughs> even, even though 18 is a lucky number, <laughs> in them, I'm not sure we should build, we should build on that. Right. So here's how here's I think we should start thinking about small steps and and small steps. Their purpose is to break what seems like in Israel. There's a zero sum game and the unspoken zero sum game is the following. Many Israelis feel that the more Israel is in control over the Palestinians, the safer they are. The less control they impose on Palestinians, the less safe they are. And since Israelis don't really want to control the Palestinians, and yet they don't want to be threatened by the Palestinians, they're paralyzed. But that is a false zero-sum game, because there are steps, many steps, that would reduce the Israeli control over Palestinians, on the one hand, and would not reduce the security of Israelis, on the other hand. And I'll give you like one important idea. I think there's 11 steps. I'll just give you one important step. I think it's easy to imagine. Sure. The, the Palestinians in the West Bank are suffering from, from something really almost unthinkable. And that is that they're living in autonomous zones controlled by Palestinian authority. But the problem is that those autonomous zones are not territorially connected to each other. So when people are speaking about occupation, what are they speaking about? I think they're speaking about the fact that these lands are not connected to each other. That means, let me just put this in, like very, in a very simple example, that if you're a Palestinian living in Ramallah, it's a town north of Jerusalem, when you're sitting in Ramallah, the cops guarding you, the system that's running your life, it's Palestinian, it's a Palestinian autonomy. And you're not experiencing, that's not where you're experiencing occupation. Here's where you, when you leave Ramallah and you want to drive to visit your cousin in Nablus, which is to the north of Ramallah, now you're in territory which is Israeli controlled by the IDF, by the Israeli army, and which means they could stop you on the road, which means if they want to, they could decide that you don't leave Ramallah. Or if you can leave Ramallah, for some reason you can't enter Nablus because of this series of security thing or something. And that is where your destiny is, is tied to someone else and their will and what they, what they are deciding at that moment. And that, that is where I would say 70, 80% of the Humiliation and the, experience, the bad experience of occupation, that's where it's located. It's there. It's the fact that the Palestinian autonomous zones are not connected to each other. Okay? So, there are plans that, already, that exist to build a whole set of roads that would connect all the Palestinian zones to each other. 
And it will take, you know, building bridges and, and, and tunnels. And, you know, it won't be a very easy, you know, but it's, it's technical. It's, it's doable and it's possible. And what you could do is build those roads and then give the Palestinians sovereignty over those roads. Now, there's a consensus among Israeli generals that this would not risk any Israeli. Obviously, it would dramatically reduce the occupation of the Palestinians. So here you have one step that reduces occupation of Palestinians, doesn't reduce security of Israelis. Let's do it. And listen, let's do it independent of a peace plan, independent on the grand solution. Let's just do it because it's the right thing to do. Let's just do it. Now, that's an example of one step. I think there's at least 11 steps. Then in the end of the, listen, every step is a small step, but the sum of small steps is actually a great step. And where these steps will take us in the end of the day will not be, and this is an important point of my book, will not be end of conflict. It will be, um, it won't lead to the end of the conflict. It will lead to the shrinkage of the conflict. And this is, I think, maybe one of the most important points I'm trying to make in the book is that we're trapped in a false dichotomy. People on the right are speaking about we can't solve the conflict, so just uh, hang on to the status quo, not do anything, and manage the conflict. People on the left are saying we can't manage the conflict. It's immoral and it's unmanageable. Let's solve the conflict. And what my book is saying, well, maybe we can't solve the conflict, but the alternative is not to manage it. The alternative is to shrink it. And in order to shrink it, I think we have to start change the paradigm from the grand solution to something that looks like the small steps solution. Now, Ehud Barak is not the only Israeli politician or former politician to weigh in. We've heard from people as diverse as from Ehud Barak all the way to Naftali Bennett on the right from the, the Jewish Home Party and just about everywhere in between. I'm curious, has there been discourse around your book or have you engaged in discourse around your book with anyone from Palestinian society? What do they think of the idea of shrinking the occupation, reducing the occupation, which I would imagine some Palestinians would say a smaller occupation is still an occupation. Yes. So there's two approaches to these ideas among Palestinians. One is saying, listen, I'm offering to think about this in like using a different category, not, east, not speaking about like either we have occupation or no occupation. Let's say if now, if now the level of occupation, if we give it points, is now up to 90, we could reduce it to 10. Okay? Maybe we can reduce it to 7. And... And we can do that without reducing security of Israelis um, at all. So, and I think, and, and, and that deal, that deal of reducing occupation from 90 to 10 or to 7, there's nothing really we're demanding from the Palestinians in return. We're not asking them to recognize the existence of the state of Israel. We're not asking them to give up the right of return. This is why I think the small step solution is very practical, because the two-state solution is asking the Palestinians to give up the right of return, which is something that traditionally they've never agreed to, and many think that they will never agree to. So let's move to something that Israelis will not ask them in, re in return for uh, giving up Jerusalem or giving up the right of return in order to help make it happen. So many Palestinians said, well, if we don't have to give you anything for that, we would take it. But there's a catch here. The catch is that we don't believe you. The catch mm. is that we think you're going to somehow screw us over. Mm. The catch is that we've been there before. And before means Oslo. 
Oslo was a certain version of a small step solution. And I'm sure not all of the people who are listening to us now um, are, understand the details of Oslo, but let me just say Oslo was the arrangement that created those islands of autonomous Palestinian zones in the West Bank and Gaza and did not connect them. And the Palestinians felt, okay, we'll take this and we'll negotiate for the rest five years from now. That was the arrangement. And in the meantime, the West Bank was suddenly highly populated by, by settlers. Now, the Palestinians think that this was kind of like many Palestinians I spoke with think this was like a conspiracy, that we, Israel, Israel um, made a deal with the Palestinians and at the same time sent hundreds of thousands of settlers into the West Bank. Now, I, I think historically there's no conspiracy here. There is a coincidence. It has to do with the Rabin government never thought it needs to populate the West Bank with many settlers in parallel to building uh, autonomous zones for, for Palestinians. It was a coincidence, but it doesn't matter. Palestinians thought it was planned, and anything we'll offer now will be a part of another plan to highly populate the West Bank with settlements. And that is why, that is why, in order to gain Palestinian trust, is uh, freezing the settlements will have to be, or at least freezing the settlements are outside of what is called in Israel the, the uh, big settlement blocks, will probably be a necessary step as a part of those 11 steps. I want to close, but first I have to ask, because so much of the discourse uh, here in America around the peace process and around, you know, from the 90s through to now has been around this kind of soft focus, sparkly you know, doves flying in the air, sense of peace. That's someday a miraculous kind of a vision. And Yitzhak Rabin was the first prophet and Shimon Peres the second. And, um, and what you're describing is so much harder, right? There are hard edges to it. It's not neat. Whereas the former is a, a beautiful puzzle that the final, you know, peace falls into place and suddenly there's peace. I have this image of a puzzle with someone, you know, the, the pieces don't match, but you take a hammer and you just kind of make them fit anyway. And, and ultimately, yes, you complete a picture, but it's not nearly as elegant. Why are your suggestions not, you know, kind of horribly pessimistic? <laughs> I think pessimism is any thought that leads to paralysis. And I actually think that my thoughts are, well, we're not going to have the ultimate peace deal in our generation. And it's because I think that that we can move forward. I think we should think about, let's think about it more like, um, let's think about this political issue like we think about crime or like we think about uh, car accidents. That whenever we think of which policy will end car accidents, we think about which policy will shrink the amount of car accidents, Right. We're thinking about crime. I really hope no one's going to start speaking about the end of crime, hmm. because that will definitely lead to dictatorship. But there are some policies that will shrink the amount of crime. So I think that, that the conflict, the Israeli-Arab conflict, we should start thinking about it like we think about crime, like we think about health care, like we think, we think in quantities. Yes, let's, how do we shrink it? How do we make things better? And... This, I think, has to do with, this is, I think, pragmatic as opposed to utopian thinking. We measure success not in light of the question, how is the result compared to a perfect reality? Because compared to a perfect reality, you always fail. But we ask, how are the results compared to where we were yesterday? 
And let's think of the politics that will lead the Palestinians 10 years from now to a place that's much better than they are today. And it leads Israelis to a place that they're more secure than they are today. And if it's better than it is today, that's good enough. And what will we do 10 years later? Let's do that again. So I think this way of thinking is not utopian, but I think it is optimistic because it does believe that the future could be better than the present, but only if we don't try to make the future perfect. If we're willing to make it, you know, a more perfect union, to quote an important American, <laughs> willing to make more perfect. So I think... I think there is room to move forward. The book is Catch 67. Micha Goodman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Dubai. Good for the Jews? If you don't already know about our work in the Arabian Gulf, you may be shocked to learn that AJC has engaged with the United Arab Emirates for more than 20 years. That country prides itself on its tolerance and its courtesy, and high-level AJC delegations travel there regularly. Recently, however, the small Dubai Jewish community made up of expats from around the world, most doing business in the UAE, took a small step out of the shadows. The article about it is a must-read, and we'll link to it in the show notes. How amazing is it to think that there is a Jewish community that meets in a small synagogue every Shabbat in Dubai, that the Torah scroll they read from was dedicated in honor of His Excellency Mohammed Ali Alabar, the mega-developer who has partnered with the government to shape Dubai's skyline, and that they pray each week for God to, quote, bless and protect, guard and help, exalt, magnify, and uplift the president of the UAE, Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed al-Nayan, and his deputy, the ruler of Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum, and all the rulers of the other emirates and their crown princes, end quote. If Dubai has become one more place in the world that is safe for Jews to live, to work, and to congregate, then that would certainly be good for the Jews. The global work of AJC, including AJC Passport, is made possible by supporters and friends like you. Make your year-end gift to AJC today by visiting www.ajc.org donate. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at ajc.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.